bum bum bottom 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 bum bum
We will get around to them unless your favorite comic book couple is Joker and Harley Quinn. Never going to happen. We're never going to cover those two. Go back and listen to our Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn episodes instead. Still some of my favorite episodes, some of our favorite conversations. And the more content that comes out for those two, like the more eager I am to get back to them and catch up with them and see where they are now. Yeah, but I do feel a little bad because with Angela and Sarah, we've been talking about them on this podcast all year long. Like, they're coming, they're coming, (laughs) but we just keep pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing it back. But... The day has finally arrived, and we are talking Angela and Sarah. We are going to do a three-episode series on this couple. We're covering Asgard Assassin today. That's hard to say. Asgard's Assassin today. Then the next Angela and Sarah episode will be the Secret Wars tie-in 1602. And then the third and final Angela and Sarah episode will be Queen of Hell. But it's actually kind of cool that we're talking Angela and Sarah right now for several reasons. One, it's Pride Month. Yeah, that's rad. Happy Pride. Two, we're covering Neil Gaiman's Sandman over on our Patreon. And so we are entrenched in that era of Gaiman. And Angela, of course, and we're going to get into it, comes from Neil Gaiman's brain and makes this weird tumble over to Marvel Comics. And then also we're gearing up to Thor Love and Thunder coming out. Angela is crucial to Thor. And we've recently covered Loki and Loki as experienced in the Everything Burns storyline. And that storyline ties directly into Asgard's Assassin. And by recently covered, I mean like a year ago. But there's links in the show notes to both our Patreon feed with those Sandman episodes. And if you want like not to pay any money, you can listen to in the main feed our conversation on Sandman issue 17. We put that into the main feed so that everyone could kind of get an idea of what we're doing with our Sandman issue by issue episodes. So hit up our show notes, hit all those links. Yeah, hit those links like whack-a-mole style. Just go in those show notes and go nuts. I'm curious, Lisa, we haven't really talked about this, but were you aware of Angela at all before we officially sat down to read these comics and have this conversation? I actually feel like I'm kind of cheating because I had already read Angela Asgard's Assassin. Right, I forget that. Before we officially picked this couple to cover at Max's behest, because this is their all-time favorite Mm. comic book couple. I've got to say, I did not, after I finished it, I was not like ravenous for Angela and Sarah stories. I love Sarah. I'm super curious about her, but um, I'm not a fantasy person. (laughs) So all of this, like, like, I don't, go trouncing into Asgard for funsies. Yeah, we uh, famously covered that in our Loki and Loki episode. I don't like knights. Yeah, yeah. I I don't like a quest. (laughs) I've been trying to get Lisa to rewatch Lord of the Rings for our entire marriage. It just has not happened. Because for a long time, I feel like I had to pretend that I was into Tolkien (laughs) because I have siblings who who like read Lord of the Rings in high school and their minds were blown. Uh They married fellow Tolkien enthusiasts. Uh Uh And I'm just, and so I had to pretend to be like interested in hobbits. And so when I finally spoke my truth and was like, 
actually, I don't like Lord of the Rings. In fact, if somebody is going after a magic sword or a, a, any kind of sacred piece of metal or grail, unless you're Indiana Jones, <laughs> I, I am not, I'm not interested. But I was, I, I, so I, I forgot that fact. And we did talk about before you reread Angela, that the idea of covering Angela and Sarah as a couple will give you an extra bit of motivation to like dig into the narrative and the character dynamics. And without spoiling the rest of our conversation that we're about to have, did you enjoy Angela Asgard's assassin more on your second go around? I feel like I didn't state clearly enough. I did enjoy it on my first go around. Okay. Because I do enjoy the company of these characters. I love the idea of an angel not being on the side of good, but being on the side of fairness, mm, I find balance. really intriguing. I also find Sarah's origin story and how she can hang with Angela, even though their principles don't necessarily align because that love and, and respect and personal history mm. is there. I, I find that, like, it's not my comfort zone sure. when I'm reading for, for funsies. Yeah, fair. I did enjoy it even more the second time around, up until I had for, completely forgotten the twist ending. Yeah, yeah, we, so yeah. I put all of this energy into like, ooh, let's get into these relationship dynamics. And then I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. And so we should say here, like if you have not read Angela's Asgard Assassin, we're gonna spoil the whole thing. We're gonna spoil that twist and it's a major one. So please read the comic before listening to this episode. Now, for my own experiences, I, of course, first encountered Angela through the Spawn comic book mm -hmm. series when issue nine was first released. And I followed the whole rigmarole between McFarlane and Gaiman when it was going down a few years ago. And I was super excited when it was announced that Angela would be joining the Marvel Comics universe in such a weird twist of fate. And I read all those Guardians of the Galaxy, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, Sarah Pacelli comics where she first appeared. And I had a good time with them. But for whatever reason, when this solo title launched, I never read it. So this was a first time read for me. And what I was surprised by was how cute this comic could mm. be. There are moments between Angela and Sarah specifically that I found tremendously adorable and made me invest in them as a couple. So when that twist did happen, I was like really crushed and confused. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm now dying to get to the next two trade paperbacks. And I'm looking for more Angela and Sarah in my Thor Marvel Comics world. You know, she has popped up a little bit in Donnie Cates' Thor run, but almost, you know, totally for plot reasons and in a very uninteresting way, in my personal opinion. I, I am enjoying Donnie Cates' Thor, but like, I, I need someone to do more with Angela and Sarah as a couple, as characters in Marvel right now. And you didn't feel this way before you actually read this comic. Oh, right. Yeah, this comic, there's enough in this comic, despite its twist, that has me going like, I need Angela and Sarah in my life. It's also been really fascinating for me to think about Angela's relationship to Asgard. Yeah. And more specifically, like, seeing Asgard from Angela's eyes yeah. because she was 
the result of Asgard being done dirty, but it's like, yeah, but also Asgard's hands are not clean. Yeah, they yeah. are covered in just um, evil feces. I, I, oh, evil feces. I couldn't, Gross. Think, I couldn't think of an end of that sentence. <laughs> this is another arc that just highlights what a monster Odin is, right? Yes, <laughs> like, entirely, and how embittered Freya is. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I, I learned things from this comic that I kind of took for granted. Like I like I think in the MCU we are supposed to suppose or assume that Thor came from the womb of Freya. Right. But in this comic, that is not the case. Right, right. Yeah, the family dynamics between these siblings, Thor, Loki, and Angela, is is fascinating. And the idea that Angela is actually the only true child of Freya. Or biological child. One of, of two. She was the first biological correct, child correct. of Freya. But between the triumvirate of Angela, Loki, and Thor, Angela, it came from the DNA of Odin and Freya, whereas that's not the case with Thor and Loki. So she was supposed to be like a physical manifestation of the peace between Vayner and Acer, and it just didn't work out. Odin's house is truly a blended family, even more so when you take into account the publication origins of how this all happened. So what you are saying is that the Odins are the Bradys of the MCU. <laughs> yes, yes. I or mean, if or yours, mine, and ours, if you want to go with the OG. Oh, well, I've never seen the OG, so no, I'm going with Bradys. I mean, has there ever been a stranger character trajectory than Angela's? If there is... I don't know it. Uh, the character first appeared, as we've already said, in Spawn Number no. 9, published by Image Comics, when it was still in partnership with Malibu Comics. We don't have the time to go into Image's whole origin story, and I'm guessing that most of you listening to this episode already know it anyway. If you don't have a clue about Image, do a quick Goog or watch the Image Revolution documentary or Robert Kirkman's Secret History of Comics, Episode 6. They do a great job of giving you the deets. Uh, what you need to know for our purposes is that when Image first launched in 1992, from the jump, despite their incredible sales figures or because of their incredible sales figures, they were critiqued for having rad art, but utterly shallow writing. Spawn's Todd McFarlane refused to take such guff sitting down, so he took to the mountain of cash he was sitting on, and he hired some of the most incredible writers in comics to pen a run of Spawn stories. He got Alan Moore for issue 8, Dave Sim for issue 10, Frank Miller for issue 11, and Neil Gaiman for issue 9. Now, for little baby Brad, this meant nothing. In fact, these Spawn issues were the first time that I ever encountered any of these writers, and I don't think I'm alone in that situation. It's hard to imagine the comic scene at the time. More folks were flooding shops, issues were selling in the millions, TV news crews were covering issue launches, Frickin' Rob Liefeld was doing Levi commercials directed by Spike <laughs> Lee. Total mass hysteria. I don't know if I have experienced in comics like a cultural equivalent to that since I've read comics. To me, it sounds mm. more like, because I mean, um, obviously comic book movies now are sure. huge, but we've seen that it isn't sending too many people back to their comic book shops. Sure. But like I have experienced like, 
the Twilight books yeah. at Comic-Con or, um, well, we or were, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, we were working at Barnes & Noble together when the last Harry Potter book dropped, and that was total it was craziness. It was, it was uh, we had a news crew in our shop. We were there for Twilight when Breaking Dawn part well, not part two, when Breaking Dawn was <laughs> launched. And that, that the, like, the Barnes & Noble was flooded with humanity. Literary madness. Those. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I I mean, we have, that era in comics has left us. I I, I do kind of miss it. Like, you, know, you know, my origin with comics is so tied to that insanity. I would love to see comics explode in such a way again. I don't know if that's actually possible. I'd love to see him try, though. But of all those writer guest spot issues, Spawn number nine is easily the most important or the most infamous. In 1993, when the issue came out, Neil Gaiman was at the height of his Sandman success. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's actually the height, but like it was it was skyrocketing at that point. And, 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 and you know, it's kind of fun to think about because we're currently reading through Sandman for the first time, as we've already discussed. And you look at Spawn number nine and you compare it to, say, what was the last uh, Sandman issue we covered? Thirty five, a game of you part four. Right. And you go like, well, it, I, you know, I read Spawn nine. Is this. Does this feel like the same writer? Does this feel like Neil Gaiman of Sandman fame writing Spawn number nine? And Lisa, you just this morning read Spawn issue number nine. What? How do you? How do you feel about it? I feel like I'm not a very good judge of it, considering that it is the only issue of Spawn I have ever <laughs> sure. read. Um, like what I get the sense of when I'm reading this issue is Gaiman is leaning into what works for him mm -hmm. where he'll have issues where he's like, okay, let me bring a bunch of players to the board. And then once I've established them and like we uh, hinted at their origin stories, then I'll really get to play. But it is very like word dense. Yeah, like there's absolutely. huge blocks of narration and yeah. Yeah, he's expanding on the mythology and giving McFarlane a ton of narrative meat to play with in future issues. You know, because not only did Spawn number nine introduce Angela into the mythology, but it also introduced medieval Spawn, Cogliostro, and fleshed out the Cold War between heaven and hell that would go on to propel the narrative for years to come, including the Angela miniseries illustrated by Greg Capullo. Here's where things get deliciously weird, though. No contracts were made in those early days between Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman. It was a lot of promises and handshakes. Reprints were published. Trade paperbacks came flowing. And action figures of these characters sprung up. Those toys, like, oh my god. God, as clearly as I remember purchasing Spawn number nine, I can remember driving to a comic shop in Annapolis, Maryland to buy the first wave. And this actually like ignites another memory. When I was a freshman in high school, I had an appendicitis and caught an infection while I was in the hospital. And I had to stay there for a couple of weeks. It was hell. And while I was there, my dad drove to another comic shop, this one in Manassas, Virginia, to buy another wave of Spawn <laughs> figures. And it was that that one that included the first Angela action figure. And I can remember opening Angela out of the box, 
while I, I like, so like in my infection, they couldn't stitch up my wound. So my wound where the appendicitis was, was like open Ugh. and gaping and we Ugh. had to clean it periodically. So my body is literally hanging open as a high schooler and I'm opening up my Angela figure to play with it in the hospital or at least to like fondle it in the hospital. Your dad is like the sweetest guy. Because, <laughs> you know, he is not the least bit interested no. in, in anything you're interested that, in. That is true. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, totally foreign and alien to him. And, you know, uh, Father's Day was yesterday and happy Father's Day to him. And many thanks to my father for driving all those miles to get me an Angela and Bad Rock action figure. Anyway, no contracts between McFarlane and Gaiman. And this led to unrest between the two. Gaiman didn't think he was receiving a fair share of all those crazy profits. And according to Gaiman, McFarlane had agreed that Gaiman would retain creator rights to his characters. But McFarlane was now saying that it was a work for hire gig. In 2002, Gaiman filed suit against McFarlane and eventually won against him and Image Comics. All three characters were then equally co-owned by both men, but in 2012, McFarlane and Gaiman settled their disputes and Gaiman was given full ownership of Angela. A year later, what does Neil Gaiman do? He sells Angela to Marvel Comics in what is either just an emotionless business move on his part or the greatest middle finger he could ever have given to Todd McFarlane. I subscribe for my worldview to the latter because <laughs> I because image they talked big about yes. their ideology yes. of setting up image empowering the creators but you see how easy it is once you the money starts yes. rolling in to like shed those principles. It does feel like a middle finger, and I like thinking of it as a middle finger. Uh, Angela is introduced into Marvel Comics through the Age of Ultron storyline. Basically, in that book, Wolverine and Hank Pym are mucking about with time travel so much that they break the Omniverse, which allows for Angela's dimension to cross over into the 616 universe, but even that's kind of reworked later on in the original Sin storyline, written by Jason Aaron, and in the 10th Realm a spin-off uh, co-written with Al Ewing, Angela is revealed to be the long-lost daughter of Odin and Freya, making her a stepsister to Thor and Loki. Long story short, many, many years ago, she was thought killed during Asgard's war with the Angels of Heaven, and as a result of that crime, Odin severed the 10th Realm from the other nine, and Freya, well, We'll talk about what Freya did during our main discussion of Asgard's assassin. Uh, that's basically it, I guess. The only other thing worth mentioning is that when Angela first came to Marvel Comics, she made her first appearance in those Guardians of the Galaxy books, and she's sort of tied with those characters, which is why they pop up in this storyline. Angela's weird road to Marvel is fascinating, and for the longest time, I thought that was what was most fascinating about her, but having now read Asgard's Assassin, I'm kind of digging her, and I'm pumped for these next couple of sessions we're going to do with her and Sarah. Neither has really taken off in the Marvel comics, but there's a tremendous untapped potential there, and we'll get into all of that in a second, but before we can do that, though, we gotta discuss our love expert for this couple, Lisa. Yes, our love expert for for Angela and Sarah, is Robin Roberts with Michelle Burford. And the book we're using is Brighter by the Day, Waking Up to New Hopes and Dreams. I freaking love Robin Roberts. Me too. Like, um, when I think of Robin Roberts, I think of her 
as that lady with amazing arms on the red carpet yeah, of the Oscars. Yeah, Oscars. same. I think that she probably would think it inappropriate and unfair to reduce her down to her exquisite physique and red carpet correspondence prowess. But as movie maniacs, that's how we interact with her, and she is awesome on that carpet. She is so grounded. She is never flustered or starstruck. She is literally unflappable, which is the opposite of me. I am extremely, <laughs> extremely flappable. So when we were walking around Target, like I've made it a habit to go to the face out self-help mm. section and just take a picture of all of the covers just in case um, one of them would pair nicely with one of our couples. When I saw that Robin Roberts had a self-help book, I'm like, this is the kind of person <laughs> I want to be. I gotta read this thing. Awesome. I do wonder if I am the only person to buy Robin Roberts' book, having zero knowledge of any of her other amazing accomplishments, including being a longtime anchor on Good Morning America, <laughs> which is like the num has been the number one morning show since 2012 or something. Never watched it in my life. I did not grow up with morning shows. Yeah. Like, even on, like, sick days, I would probably, like, I, I'm somewhat familiar, like, with the kind of midday fair, like Oprah and Ellen uh -huh. and Rosie O'Donnell. Like, I would watch those if I was having a sick day. But I never, I, I think um, morning shows were always too newsy to me. Uh, I mean, for me, they often came on at the same time as The Price is Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I just didn't get up that early, right? Like, so like, Good Morning America, like, that's actually pretty early. And I was never an early riser. My complete lack of knowledge of what a morning show actually is <laughs> aside, yeah. the more I learn about Robin Roberts, the deeper my respect mm. and admiration for her grows. Just for what she's done on Good Morning America, she has earned six Emmys, one Peabody Award. She has written four self-help books, actually, including this one. Oh, wow. And she seems to be this deeply thoughtful, empathetic, and most importantly, optimistic person. I'm excited. She is also a very busy person, which is probably why we also see that she has, I guess, like in the, like I think of it as a ghostwriter, but it's not a ghostwriter because her name is on the title. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. she's called in, uh, on the, in her about the author blurb is she's the collaborative writer. Michelle Burford. That's right. I'd like to just read her about the author blurb, if you don't mind. Yeah. Michelle Burford served as Robin Roberts' collaborative writer. She is a number one New York Times bestselling author who has partnered on 12 books with legends, including Cecily Tyson, Alicia Keys, Halle Berry, and Simone Biles. She is also a founding editor of O, the Oprah magazine, and a former Essence magazine editor. A native of Phoenix, she lives in New York City. Visit michelleburford.com. This lady makes me curious. Yeah. I want to know how she got in that game because it sounds so fun to just hang out with someone who is totally rad and then sit down and capture their voice in the form of yeah. a self-help book or whatever. That sounds so, like such an amazing gig. You should talk to Kevin, our friend Kevin mm -hmm. Panetta, about that because he does something similar, although he's like a proper ghostwriter. He's like writer. a legit ghostwriter where his name is nowhere near the cover of the book. Yeah, But yeah. if you see a comic book, 
that is penned by a celebrity. It could be that <laughs> our friend Kevin wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Robert Roberts, let's do this, Lisa. A lot of times when I'm choosing our love expert for a couple, I go in with this like laser focus intentionality, like how we used... Helen Russell's How to Be Sad yeah. for Marco and Alana of so Saga. Good. That was like a really good pairing. Um, I think I have presented a challenge for myself pairing Angela and Sarah to Brighter by the Day because what Robin Roberts is really trying to do with this book is help foster and encourage optimism which I don't think is, it's definitely not a goal for Angela. Mm -hmm. I don't think that um, she feels herself lacking in optimism mm -hmm. because it's just not on her list of priorities. Yeah, I don't know. Like I think about some of our favorite pairings that, that did come out of you kind of like just randomly smashing a self-help guide with a comic book couple. I think about Common and Swamp Thing and Abigail a lot. Did not expect to see such connectivity between those three, but it worked so well. I often think about um, pairing Brene Brown's Daring Greatly for mm. Thanos and Death. Yeah. That was another one where we found a lot of synchronicity in the message from both the books and the comics. Yeah. So I'm hoping that magically something comes together yeah, yeah. <laughs> pairing these two these two books. Yeah, synchronicity through serendipity. It was also not intentional that we are following up uh, Helen Russell's How to Be Sad with Robin Roberts' Brighter by the Day, because it does make it seem like the Gullicksons, like having experienced their sa sadness, are like running panicked <laughs> back to joy. Like it... The, though those two books actually are kind of mirror images of each other because they were both books that were a result of the pandemic. Mm. Like where um, Helen Russell was thinking like coming out of the pandemic, we all feel like because our spirits were dampened, we somehow failed. And she was encouraging us to go like, hey, feeling sadness, feeling those darker emotions is not a failure. Um, Robin Roberts um, it came out of the pandemic going like, we are all hurting and we, um, we've we experienced and we are like kind of steeped in cynicism. Mm. And a lot of us do want to um, reignite our optimism. And in her introduction, she says that like, optimism is a muscle. Yeah. And if anybody knows about muscles and getting yoked, <laughs> both physically and spiritually, it is Robin Roberts. Yeah. And so she says like, we need to practice seeing the silver lining. We need to practice um, recognizing what makes us feel fulfilled and happy and excited about the future. Not to promote my own other stuff over at Film School Rejects, but plug, I recently plug, plug. chatted with Phil Tippett, uh, the guy who created the Rancor and the Tauntauns for Star Wars. He has a new film out called Mad God streaming on Shudder. We chatted about his ability to hope 
in this modern era. Because when you watch his film, you're like, is this filmmaker a hopeful guy? Doesn't feel like it. And, you know, that's the thing about where we are right now. Like, if you want to be optimistic, you really have to work at it. In the introduction of Brighter by the Day, Robin starts by thanking her tribe. And she's speaking specifically about her social media following. Mm, Interesting. So... During the pandemic, like many of us, she had to start working remotely. So for seven months, she anchored Good Morning America from a makeshift studio in her basement. And of course it was isolating. So she began like craving human connection. So she started reading her daily morning devotional and doing a prayer over social media, like over Instagram Mm. with her girlfriend, Amber, as the camera person and their little dog, Lil Man Lucas, (laughs) barking his amens. Those are her her words (laughs) that he barked his amens um, from the background. And um, once she started going back to work, her social media following was was like, please Continue. keep, you know, keep starting our day together with this uh, uh, s- spiritual um, devotional experience. And, and that's what inspired this book. Brighter by the Day is a book in three parts, which is perfect for Angela and Sarah since we only have three sessions with them. What we'll be covering with Angela and Sarah this week will be part one, the joy mindset. Part two is called positive on purpose, and part three is stronger than you know. The chapters within each part are short, punchy, two to three page essays, driving home a message that is supported with examples from Robin's real life. For our girls, I just wanted to condense each chapter into the actionable messages so that they can start feeling brighter by the day. So let's get into it. Number one. Number one is choose joy. Robin starts by differentiating happiness from joy. To Robin, happiness is circumstantial and transitory. It's the feeling that you get when you reach a goal or indulge in a momentary delight. Happiness is unsustainable and just burns out over time. Joy is something you can access independently from your circumstances as long as you choose it. She doesn't really outline what joy feels like, but it seems to me to be the fruits of practicing optimism. Optimism is always choosing to see the good in the bad, believing in yourself that you have the tools to change your situation, and expressing gratitude for what you do have. She believes even people who consider themselves cynical and pessimistic have what it takes to become optimists. Here's a quote. I'll let you in on a secret. If your goal is to move toward a sunnier outlook, hyphen, and I'm proud of you for even considering that act of self-love, hyphen, (laughs) you have to want it, period. And that's the end of the quote. That quote actually raises some red flags for me because this to get it, you have to want it Mm. mentality is something of a thought-terminating cliche, also known as a semantic stop sign. Say someone wants a sunnier outlook, so they invest their time and money in Robin's book, but they can't feel a significant difference. Well, the problem could not possibly be with the book. The problem is clearly because they obviously didn't want it enough. Because if they really wanted it, then of course it would have worked. 
thought terminating cliches are often used in marketing, in religion, mm. in cults. Mm. And I don't think that Robin is using this thinking intentionally or maliciously. I just think that when you're in a self-help space, that's the kind of thing you should really be looking out for. Yeah, I think about how we often say, like, God works in mysterious mm -hmm. ways. That's a thought-terminating cliche. Or put your uh, questions on a shelf. Yes. That's a thought-terminating cliche. Yes, number one is choose joy. One B is that when you can't find joy, settle for some happiness. It's good to know what tools you have at your disposal that can automatically lighten your mood. Robin Roberts, for example, enjoys sunrises and drinks with little umbrellas in them. <laughs> so um, find those things that just automatically make you happier and fold them into your routine whenever you can. I'm not quite sure how Angela and Sarah are going to respond to the idea of yeah. choosing joy, because I just feel like neither of them has joy on their radar yeah. at all. It's certainly not a priority for Angela in particular. Number two, make your one day your day one. When it comes to choosing to be more joyful and optimistic, don't put it off until your circumstances are better. Start today. For Robin and her family, this one day, day one mindset applies in all areas of their lives, not just their optimism. Growing up in the 1930s, Robin's father, Lawrence, wanted to fly planes. And despite being told that little black boys never grew up to be pilots, he kept moving forward towards his dream, and he eventually joined the Air Force and became one of the Tuskegee Airmen. What? This day one mentality is going to be the way we get Angela on board with Robin Roberts, because Angela is a person who never puts off a goal. Yeah. Like, she's like, okay. Totally. Toss a baby in a fire, what's next? <laughs> yeah. I'm ready to move on. Yeah. She is like a woman of action. And I think Robin Roberts would, they would have mutual respect for that. <laughs> Number, I don't know about the baby tossing. <laughs> I mean, don't lead with the baby tossing, <laughs> okay. certainly. Number three, change the way you think to change the way you feel. We actually touched on this a little bit in our introduction. Robin Roberts is actually a big believer in rituals. She does daily devotionals, gratitude journals. She practices transcendental meditation. There are a lot of tiny little things that she does every single day. She believes that fostering optimism takes that constant training and conditioning. And you'll notice when you choose to be an optimist in training, you will feel tested. Here's a quote. When you seek out more of anything, courage, empathy, and in this case, joy, our resolve will be tested. It's like the universe saying, you sure about that? Let me double check. That challenge isn't meant to deflate us, rather it's there to deepen our determination. Robin Roberts uses a lot of God language, and I I see her interpretation of, of God being almost like an AA interpretation mm. of God. It's like God is the place where you place all of the chaos. Like, I can't control this thing, so God will in turn take care of it. I like that. I think that'll play well, given the fact that we are discussing Angela, mm -hmm. an angel of heaven, Sarah, an angel of heaven. I think they'll both have... A, a slightly different angle on the Lord, uh -huh. but uh, but I think it'll be interesting to get into. Uh, I hope there's some rhyming there. But if you're not God leaning, I think um, I think you'll still kind of notice, like uh, now that I'm trying to be more optimistic, I'm seeing 
all of these reasons to be cynical. Sure. I think that's just like natural because when you think, like when I think about changing myself, I go like, I want to be more empathetic. Then all of a sudden it's like taking Mm -hmm. a red pen and circling every other person who is not being empathetic and mm-hmm. I feel triggered by that person. Mm-hmm. Cause so, you're focused on it now. Exactly. So like whenever you try to look to the bright side, the negative side, the dark side will also be more present. Mm. And I think that the way Robin Roberts would interpret that is that we can then choose to focus more and be more proactive on the light side. All right. Number four is envision your victory. In 2005, Robin's dad passed away, and she had finally ended a tumultuous on-again, off-again relationship. She wanted to be in the kind of relationship her parents had, and she was beginning to feel discouraged like it would never happen for her. So she started using visualization. When she went to restaurants, she began saving a seat for Tibba, or TBA, that vision (laughs) of the perfect partner. Don't laugh, it's sweet. It's amazing. I mean, I would be annoyed if I was a server and I'm like, this place (laughs) is like hella crowded (laughs) and this person is holding a seat for someone who may or may not exist. I love it, no, I love it, I love it. I never would have thought of it, I love it. But she continued to do that until her friend Bert set her up with a friend of a friend named Amber and Robin has been with Amber for 17 years. Do you think Robin has a pet nickname for Amber and it is Tibba? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they do in the bedroom, Would I be but I am curious. Called Tibba. I don't know. Fascinating. Um, but uh, like, did that empty seat actually make Amber show up faster? Like, maybe, maybe not. But like, having that seat there. Mm. Helped Robin feel yeah. like finding a partner was a possibility it for her. It makes sense to me. Yeah. I feel like Sarah envisioned her victory when she was down there with the anchorites. She had it in her mind that she would be able to get out of that cave and live her true gender identity so that when Angela showed up, she recognized it. She saw, she she would like had that seat mm. in her heart of, there's going to be a way that I get out of here and Angela is that way. And number five is give thanks for the glass. To Robin, people become so preoccupied with the glass, it's half empty, it's half full, that we forget to be grateful that the glass is there giving Mm. the liquid of our lives a shape. Mm. When traveling and doing some reporting in Africa, Robin visited a small impoverished village that was deeply impacted by the AIDS crisis. And she noticed a group of women wearing these colorful clothes and dancing and making music together. So she asked her interpreter if it was a holiday and the interpreter said, no, they're just celebrating life, that is all. Sometimes we become lost in the question, am I really happy? Am I truly fulfilled? And we we just look past it being a freaking miracle that any of us are here at all. Right. I know that Sarah has tremendous gratitude for Angela taking her out of the underbelly of heaven, but both of them have really angsty relationships with their origins. And I think it would be a huge step for either of them to express true gratitude for just being. And I think that's it. I know that's a lot to put in the laps of Angela and Sarah, especially considering that they might not want what Robin Roberts is selling at all. But I think we should be keeping an eye out for those expressions of joy and gratitude and just kind of building on that. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was alluding to at the very beginning of this episode. There are like surprise moments 
of gratitude, of cuteness shared between them that's pretty darn exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But before we can get into session with them, we need to do some words of affirmation. For first-time listeners, Lisa, should we explain actually what the words of affirmation portion of the show is? Sure. The words of affirmation are the way that we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We are huge believers in affirmations. We curate these and use them for ourselves, and we are more than happy to pass them along to you. This week... All of our words of affirmation come from the pages of Brighter by the Day. This book is chock full of um, delicious little quotables, like each section is started with a quote, each chapter is started with a quote, and they really serve to set the tone for what Robin Roberts is about to share. So in these quotes, if they are not accredited to an individual, then they came from Robin or a member of Robin's family. Okay, okay, all right. So we should put ourselves in a receptive mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, to we're, we're ready to receive these affirmations. Let's get a little calm. Rivel, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Arthur Ashe. Kita Orishi. You have no expectations. You approach every situation with a beginner's mind. Teresa. If you hear a voice within you saying, you are not a painter, then by all means paint, and that voice will be silenced. Victor Van Gogh. Asimov Fangirl. When you doubt your power, you give power to your doubt. Henri de Balzac. Scott, you have everything you need to forge a new path for yourself. Yeah, those are really lovely. That last one is Robin's mom. Isn't that sweet? Oh, yeah. I like that one a lot. You know, I also want to, like, pull the curtain back a little bit. Like, um, Balzac, it's hard to say. (laughs) It makes me giggle. That was my third try, guys. Maybe that's why he's had like such a great perspective on life. You know, because you can't you can't have a name like Balzac and not have a sense of humor. Granted, he was French. Uh, oh boy. Uh, so those words of affirmation dedicated to those lovely patrons. We thank you. You make the show possible. Of course, if you're not a patron, feel free to take those little bits of wisdom into your life and apply them to you. Uh, that's what we do every week. Uh, we hold on to these things, and uh, we find them incredibly helpful. Uh, so there you go. That is the words of affirmation portion of the show, Lisa. I think it went really well. Balls I, I think so, too. Five stars. Yes, yes. Let's <laughs> An Apple iTunes? Yes, let's... <laughs> please, five stars. We need words of <laughs> affirmation, clearly. Uh, but let's get into the comic book. Uh, the main event this week, we're discussing Angela Asgard's Assassin, issues one through six, written by Kieran Gillen and Marguerite Bennett, penciled by Phil Jimenez and Stephanie Hans, inked by Tom Palmer, LeBeau Underwood, Scott, Hannah, and Stephanie Hans, colored by Rumelo Fagardo Jr. I'm butchering that name, I apologize. And lettered by VC's Clayton Cowles. We should totally have Clayton Cowles on this podcast because <laughs> he might be the most named individual 
On comic book couples counseling. Yeah, uh, that guy likes to work. Uh, <laughs> here's the basic plot synopsis taken right off the back of the trade paperback. All her life, Angela, the finest warrior of heaven, was raised to hate Asgard with every fiber of her being. And now Angela knows the truth about her identity. She is Thor's sister. She is an Asgardian. Cast out of her home and wanting nothing to do with Asgard, Angela must now strike out on her own. But what does Angela have that both Asgard and Heaven want? And why are they so eager to get it, Lisa? Uh, they have uh, Odin and Freya's baby. Yeah, yeah. And they're eager to get it back because it's their baby. I don't know what <laughs> Heaven's deal is. <laughs> well, we, we know what Angela's deal is because there's something unique about this baby. It's not just the product of Freya and Odin. There's a little extra juice in there. <laughs> <laughs> By jizz, you, you mean jizz? <laughs> I mean, sooner come. <laughs> so, like, I think before we get into session, we need to discuss, like, like the last issue is like a twist. Like, there's two huge twists on it. Right. Should we just lay them out right now and look at everything through the context of these twists? Yeah, I think so. I think I, because otherwise you're talking around those twists and... That, that doesn't help us in an actual session situation with Angela and Sarah. Mm -hmm. So just go ahead and like lay out the twists, Lisa. So twist number one, Angela's sister, the child that she stole, carries the bloodline of Surtur because at some point following the Everything Burns storyline, Odin and Freya had their love reignited for the first time in eons and they got real randy for each other but they got it on in the space between spaces, in the realm that is not a realm. Through their lovemaking, they purged the curse and power of Surtur. But, oopsie daisy, that curse, I guess, and power went into the baby that they conceived. Unbeknownst to them. Right. So that's why Angela stole the baby, because it's full of that... Surter stuff. Yeah, so that, that, all right, that all makes sense. What's the other twist, Lisa? The other twist is that Sarah is Malekith the whole time. Oh no! So apparently, because of something that Angela did, Sarah died. And angels have no afterlife. So it's supposed to be like dead, gone. But uh, Malekith, wanting to get, I guess, get in on all of this Surtur stuff or whatever, impersonates Sarah to Angela. And Angela, this entire storyline is like, are you really, Sarah? And Malchus is like, yeah, I am. And she's like, but are you really? So technically, even though we have, like, this is supposed to be a counseling session between Angela and Sarah, it's really a counseling session with Angela and the idea of Sarah. But that's not the final twist either. There's like another twist of the dagger right. at the very end that gives us hope for a future counseling session with Angela and Sarah. So I'm going to call this twist 2B. <laughs> After Angela was stolen by heaven, Freya was real pissed. So she went to the Norn of the world tree and was like, I want my revenge on heaven. So instead of dead over, 
angels go straight to hell and they go to the lowest realm of hell where they just suffer and suffer with no idea that it was coming. Right, right. So So this allowed Malekith to chat with Sarah through the bars of her imprisonment and get all the deets about who she is as an angel and then therefore impersonate her and trick Angela. At the same time, what's clever about this is even though this is not Sarah technically in this session, he does such a good impersonation of Sarah and it feels like Sarah gave this information willingly. We we, we have to wait uh, and read the other volumes to truly understand that. But I get the impression that Sarah willingly gave this information to lure Angela back to hell to rescue her and free all these angels. And of course, this volume ends with Angela like, I'm going to hell. And I'm, I'm assuming that she does. Um, one thing that I think we should keep in mind is that um, Malekith studied Sarah very closely And when he was telling Angela about it, he said, every word I spoke to you, every gesture was hers. So when we hear Malekith speaking as Sarah, Mm -hmm. there is still a ton of information that we can glean from that because that is the way that Sarah to Malekith summed up their relationship and was like, if you want to um, have Angela recognize me, these are the things you should know. But that still wasn't really enough. Angela could totally tell that that was not her Sarah, even with all of the knowledge, which implies to me that relationships are so much more than what you look like and your shared history. There is something ineffable that Malekith could not impersonate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you, Lisa, but I also feel like this is still an Angela and Sarah session Mm -hmm. with a Asgardian uh, heavenly twist to it. And we don't need to update the title of this episode, Angela and Malekith. We (laughs) can keep Angela and Sarah. And I think that while we have them in session, we're just going to call Malekith Sarah. Yeah, yeah. It's weird and creepy, but weird and creepy the way all of these Asgardian stories should be. You can imagine us making air quotes if it makes you more comfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Or at the very least, an asterisk, right? So we can invite Angela and Sarah into session now and get on with it. Asgard's assassin opens after Angela has already stolen her sister from Odin and Freya, and she is hiding out in limbo, uh, and she's traveling to Untown, which looks a lot like something you would see in Tolkien, uh, or it's very orky. It's a very mm-hmm. orky looking place. And when she gets there, Sarah's waiting for her. The image of Angela is accompanied by those like scrolly captions mm-hmm. that um, give us insight to what Angela is thinking as she's trudging through the stands of time. And she's thinking to herself, her guiding principle, which is nothing for nothing. So having been raised by angels, they are not interested in goodness. What they're interested in is fairness. So for Angela to be perfect, she has to have, she she can't be in debt to anybody and she can't have anyone in debt to her. For her total freedom is this this freedom from these interconnected needs. Yeah, so almost immediately, 
the idea of value is put into this story. And, you know, the title is Priceless. Mm -hmm. So value, that like that's something that we should be focusing on because clearly it is important to Angela. I think to Angela, from an angelic perspective, pricelessness means to not owe or be owed because to be owed is to be exploited and to owe is to be enslaved. And so that is her motivation in this storyline from the outset. Would you say that that ideology is shared by the angels of heaven? And it's certainly not shared by Sarah under the influence of Malekith. But I wonder, is it shared by Sarah not under the influence <laughs> of Malekith? I think that Sarah has a lot of reasons to not adhere perfectly to the ideologies yeah. of the angels, considering that she was born an anchorite, right. which had her enslaved underneath heaven, um, just having to pray all of the time and well, not express her true gender. And, and what about the angels of heaven and Angela's like take on um, balance? I think that like, Nothing for nothing is the principle of heaven and the angels, but just like us human beings and our principles, they don't live up to their principles right. all of the time. So for that's sure. that's one of the things that makes Angela so extraordinary to the angels of heaven is even though she does not have wings and is not technically an angel, she is the individual that holds that principle most highly. If we were talking about um, the four tendencies, Angela is an upholder, mm. right? She, if you give her a rule, she will follow it strictly. Mm. And if she's following a rule, she might not necessar necessarily take the time to explain to you why she is upholding something. Yeah, yeah. So Angela walks the talk whereas the Queen of Angels most certainly does not. Right, and, and she ends up having to pay for that later. What I enjoy so much about Asgard's Assassin is that it just drops you right into the action, and here comes Angela into Untown, and here is Sarah. And even though this is Sarah's first appearance in Marvel Comics, we get the impression that there is a life lived already between these two. And what I love is that while Angela was off in Asgard, stealing the heir to the throne, Sarah has been in Untown gambling, which is essentially the fetishization of owing and being owed. Mm. So Sarah loves to run contrary to that angel's principle. Angela doesn't call her out for her behavior though. She just kind of accepts Sarah for who she is. Um, but Angela, upon first seeing her, goes like, you know, like I was concerned. And she was concerned because she has, after um, Sarah died I and come back, I imagine there's a lot of like separation anxiety and guilt there. And Angela sort of just blows that off. Like, okay, well, we don't exactly know how Sarah came back, but she's back and I'm not gonna worry about it. Sarah kind of soothes Angela's concerns though and comforts her and says like, don't worry, like I'm not going anywhere. 
And she notes that Angela's tails are wagging. One of my favorite bits from this entire comic book. When she was created, she was given these like kind of straps that just kind of flip around in the breeze. Yeah, these crazy McFarlane ribbons. You know, they're like Spider-Man's webbing. They have a mind of their own. It's just entirely too cute. Yet that cuteness doesn't get to last because Angela has been pursued through limbo by these supernatural brutes. They want that baby. Angela's not going to give that baby. Angela tosses that baby to Sarah and she goes to town. She goes to untown <laughs> on these demon dudes. And it's an awesome action sequence. While Sarah is on babysitting duty, one of the demons of untown is like, who is this crazy angry lady? And Sarah contextualizes Angela by telling a story that she says she always tells. <laughs> it's quite the introductory little story. So there was this colony crash and Angela saves a baby. But of course she can't just save a baby. No. That baby now is in debt to her. It owes her its existence. So when she hands over the child to guardians, she says, make sure when, as you're raising this baby, they know that they owe me and I'm going to come to collect. So that child grows up to be the king of Westerlands. He has really made himself powerful. He has made himself a great man. And the way Sarah tells it, she says it's like, well, nobody wants to be a bad investment. Nobody wants to be taken for less than they're worth. So that child, that man made sure that he was the most valuable man. Unfortunately, while Sarah is knocking around from place to place, she ends up getting arrested in this guy's kingdom. And apparently oh no. she's murdered some people. It's yeah. really bad. So Angela rolls in and is like, okay, you owe me your life. Instead of taking your life, I will take Sarah. And he's like, nah, uh, I can't really do that. She had, we've got laws here. She's killed a bunch of people. And so Angela is like, uh, you realize that you owe me. And he's like, yeah, I, I know that more than I know anything else. She asks him three times. And after that third time, he's still like, no, thank you. And so she murders him. Yeah, I mean, if those untown orcs weren't a little nervous around Angela before, they certainly will be going forward. And this is a heck of a story to like introduce your girlfriend to anyone you meet. I do think that it shows that to Angela, Sarah's life is her life. Mm, and when she yeah. lost Sarah, she lost her life as well. And being fans of mythology, these types of stories, these Asgardian Marvel comics, it is romantic in that horrendous, atrocious way, right? Like, I, like, I found myself when I was listening to that story, I, I, by the end of it, like, I was like, oh. It is kind of sweet to murder a king for your girlfriend. In mythological terms, you know, like, you know, just look over at Odin and Freya. You know, I'm just saying <laughs> this is like, this is par for the course. Sarah ends that story by saying, that's who Angela is. She's my best friend and I owe her everything. She saved my life. But then Angela punctuates that with, not always. So Angela is clearly processing some latent guilt over 
getting Sarah killed. She feels that Sarah's death was um, her responsibility. I think in the telling of this story to Untown, we see a lot of the way that Sarah functions as Angela's partner. She is almost like the Angela to everyone else translator. And there is a certain intimacy to her being able to kind of um, explain the unscrutable. Yeah, I, I like. I think this is an element that was missing from Angela when they introduced Angela in the Guardians of the Galaxy comic books. Like, it's it's good to have someone who can speak to the reader in angelic terms, who has slightly strayed from that strict dogma. Because it is also a lot to introduce the concept of heaven, H-E-V-E-N, into Marvel comics. Like, we're used to Asgard and Thor and Loki and Odin and Balder and all that stuff, but, you know, to have, like, a Christian idea of heaven, and really, like, Todd McFarlane's idea of a Christian heaven, like this militarized bounty hunter heaven shoved into Marvel comics, we need, we need someone to really, like take our hand, the readers, and guide us through this concept. And that person is definitely not going to be Angela based on her personality, right? If Angela was that person, it would like ruin her character. But Sarah can do it. I feel like in this story, Heaven functions as a foil for Asgard. Certainly. Because in Asgard, it is all about obedience to the All-Father and occasionally the All-Mother. And you do it just because you are Asgardian and for no other reason, where in heaven, you're only burdened by your own debt. Mm. Like, so so you don't, you don't have to kowtow to anyone unless you owe them something. Yeah, yeah. God doesn't get mentioned in this heaven. Yeah, Jesus I doesn't get mentioned in this heaven. I think it's a real stretch to say that this is a Christian idea of heaven. Yeah, no, it's Todd McFarlane's uh, idea of heaven by way of Neil Gaiman's cheekiness. And as Asgard's assassin continues, heaven and Asgard really do feel like proper foils for each other. And the first issue climaxes with Thor and his boys showing up because they're in pursuit. They know Angela has the baby, you know, Odin and Freya's baby. And the second issue opens really with this discussion, this revisitation to the Asir-Venir war that started all this madness many eons ago. And Sif. Yeah. Thor's boys and Sif. Can't forget about Sif. Um, we actually also get a flashback of Angela kidnapping her sister, and she gets to meet her birth mother kind of for the first time, and... She really likes her and feels a little bad for having to take her baby. Those two really do feel like two peas of a pod. They feel like mother-daughter. Yeah, well, they both definitely have a thing with fairness. I think that Freya would fit in very well in yeah. heaven. Uh, but Angela is not ready to explain herself to the Asgardians, so she makes like a tree and leaves and goes to Midgard. Finally, in Midgard we get to what I want to see, the good relationship mm. stuff, because they have like a little lull in their adventure where there's nothing they can do but wait, and Angela is not the best at waiting. <laughs> so we see them walking through Central Park, holding a baby, 
and eating ice cream. And Angela is like, like it feels weird in the middle of my quest to be eating ice cream. And Sarah is like of the mind of, why not enjoy our time while we're here? Which I think relates back to Robin Roberts and the idea of like, why turn down happiness? Like, why not hit the happiness button when you can? And and hopefully, that's what I'm hoping, Sarah, when we get the real Sarah, we get to see how she encourages Angela's joy and being able to actually enjoy life and not be so preoccupied with, oh, this person over here owes me and I owe that person over there. She can just kind of be. Yeah, and you get to a sequence like this and it really does feel like a relief. I think so often, especially in Thor comics, we get caught up in the plotty plot, plot, Mm -hmm. plot. But what makes Marvel comics great are the non-plot related moments, the character beats, right? The emotional beats, the one-on-one stuff. This, Central Park, ice cream, kickball, all of that stuff. This is what we want. X-Men playing baseball. But it only really, like, lasts for, like, four panels because Uh, the kickball is the kickball of a child that Angela catches, and then the child wants it back. And then Sarah is stuck awkwardly explaining why Angela refuses to just give the girl back her ball. Yeah, yeah, and so there's another, like, crazy story Uh, I I do think this comic could use more Central Park ice cream time. I second that. There is one thing. So the story that Sarah tells the child is essentially like Sarah turning down the Queen of Heaven. It's a good scene. When the Queen of Heaven asks for a favor, Odin had put a curse on heaven and that curse put out the fire of the engine that runs heaven. So the queen of heaven goes to Angela and is like, surely you can do something to rectify the situation. And Angela is like, yeah, but you know, the whole nothing for nothing thing, like what can you give me for saving you? And the queen of heaven is like, ooh, this is awkward. Um, Let me think, uh, treasure? And Angela's like, I don't, I don't really have need for treasure. And then the queen of heaven is like, hmm, well, tracts of land. I can give you land and you can, you can settle down. And she's like, I don't need land. I don't need land any more than I need wings. And so the queen of heaven goes, I can give you a favor. And Angela goes like, I don't want your favor. What I want is the debt. I want to be freed of the debt that I already owe you, which is my existence. So she doesn't want to do, like she doesn't feel that this favor is, um, like outweighs the debt that she already owes. So she walks away from saving heaven. Sarah ends the story by saying, uh, quote, Angela is the best of us, the greatest of us, because she always keeps our rules, our ways, not like me. I was always ga- I was always garbage at that. And so uh, the little kid is like, fine, like I promise I'll owe you for uh, getting my ball back. And and Angela's like, that's right, nothing for nothing. I really admire the way that Sarah carefully guards Angela's principles, 
even mm. though they are not her principles. It's kind of like how Angela doesn't admonish Sarah for being a murderess and a gambler. Like, uh, Sarah doesn't mind going like, I know it's not rational, but that's who Angela is, and I love her for it. In the next issue, there's actually an incredible moment that directly addresses Angela's hypocrisy there, right? So they travel to Vanaheim because they want to get out from the all-seeing eye of Hamdal. The Asgardians can see wherever they go, but he can't see through his old flame's wedding dress. And on Vanaheim, in a temple dedicated to everlasting love, where the Asir and the Veneer used to have their arranged marriages, uh, there is the wedding dress of Syriana. And when Angela puts that on, she disappears from Hamdal's sight, and she also gets those wings. That's right. So the, the wedding dress appears as the heart's desire of the wearer. So she literally just told the Queen of Angels she didn't need nor want wings, and here she is with wings, yeah. indicating that there is a hypocrisy there. It might not be a hypocrisy of action, but it's a hypocrisy of the heart. She's not really saying what she actually wants. She's just adhering to that principle. And now that she has her costume upgrade, she can go to heaven, but... She needs a little help to get there. A ride. So she calls on her friends, the Guardians of the Galaxy. And what I like about this sequence is it does feel like Angela is retreating to a happy place. She might not call it a happy place, but I bet you Robin Roberts would call it a happy place. Yes, Robin Roberts is a huge believer in happy places. Her happy place is Key West, <laughs> and she really cherishes her time there, and the friends that she has there. Yeah, and so I feel like that's what the Guardians represent for Angela. I mean, Sarah is that too, but she's also something a little bit more, and because she's a little bit more, she can't be that particular type of happy place mm. the way that Gamora and Peter and Rocket and Groot can be. And Drax, don't forget Drax. Well, maybe we can think of it as like Guardians being her happiness, like... It's circumstantial and tra transitory. While Sarah is more part of her joy, it is sustaining. Mm, yeah, I like that a lot. Of course, then with your friends in your happy place, you can't always maintain that happy place happy all the time. And things get a little tense. And Star-Lord notices Angela being demanding and weirdly protective of Sarah. And this is where we get Sarah telling their entire meet-cute story. Sarah was born among the Anchorites. So for every 100 female angels that are born, one male angel is born. And male angels live in seclusion where they just continuously pray for the success of the angels. And Sarah was placed among them, but she knew that she wasn't supposed to be there. She knew that she was not male. And so this is where in the introduction, I mentioned that, that Sarah had a tibba. She had a place in her heart that she saved for her escape so that when her escape arrived, she would recognize it. So when she sees Angela slaying a beast, she goes up to her and goes like, I will help you slay this beast 
in exchange for getting me out of here. And the other angels objected, but Angela stood by Sarah. And in gratitude, Sarah gave Angela a flute. Now, this is a huge gesture from angel to angel because they already had a fair exchange. I help you slay the beast. You get me out. We're even. This is Sarah unevening the situation, making Angela in debt and therefore connected to her. And Angela is in no rush to fulfill that debt. And this debt is maintained between them, which I think is their kind of, it's, it's the way that they maintain their connection. Like they still owe each other, so they still need each other. It's like a justification. Yeah, yeah, but, but a love justification. So while Hamdal can't see Angela while she's wearing Ciri's dress, the Desir don't have that issue. And the Desir are like zombie Valkyrie from hell. They're Hela's minions. And they've tracked Angela and Sarah down into the Guardians of the Galaxy ship. There's a battle. Many heads are cut off. Many limbs are severed. They are victorious. But in the conflict, the Guardians of the Galaxy realize that they have kidnapped Odin and Freya's baby. They're not too happy about it. And Angela, she doesn't know how to deal with their grumpiness. She just kind of storms off. Angela just feels like she doesn't owe the Guardians an explanation. And Sarah offers to speak to Angela alone. But when they're together, it turns out that that's not what Angela wants to talk about at all. Because Angela is once again, really skeptical that Sarah, the Sarah in front of her, is her Sarah. And we, of course, know that is not, is Malekith. And um, the way that Malekith Sarah answers is like, we've been through this before. I've already proven myself to you. And that's when we get a flashback to their actual reuniting after Sarah's death. Because again, this is like the secret mystery at the heart of this greater mystery. Like we're so distracted by the baby, we're not paying attention to the fact that Sarah returned from the dead when angels should not return from the dead. And Star-Lord had brought that up, but of course Sarah dismissed that because Sarah didn't want that to be explored. She, you know, used one of those thought terminating cliches. She had to shut that down. Did I use that right, Lisa? Mm -hmm. It was a semantic stop sign. So when Sarah goes to Angela to like calm her down because the guardians are like, I don't know about this Odin business. Angela actually surprises Sarah by going back to that reunion, going back in time and saying like, I'm not sure you are who you say you are. And the way Sarah then deflects Angela is by saying, well, let's let's think back to that reunion. Remember, we've already gone through this process. You've already asked me these three questions that only I could answer. And the three questions were, what was the first song I taught you? What was my nightmare? And who was responsible for my death? And the answers were Scarborough Fair. I was afraid of being back with the Anchorites. And you, you caused my death. But what I think, I, I think the reason Angela maintained her doubt about Sarah's identity is that I, I know from our relationship, I never 
tire of proving I'm myself to you. Hmm, interesting. You know what I mean? Like, I always have this desire to share, and I always have this curiosity about what's going on <laughs> inside of you. Yeah, and we do revisit the same stories over and over again. That's not something that's unsimilar uh, to what is happening here. But to me, what's weird about this scene and what should have sent off some more red flags is why is it the test that Sarah answer questions about herself? Shouldn't Sarah answer questions about Angela that only Sarah would know? Isn't that how you find a body snatcher? Yeah, I would totally be like, Brad, of course it's me. Your butt crack makes a Y on top. <laughs> Don't talk about my butt crack <laughs> now that, now and we it's have, Y shape. Now we have to scratch that off of our <laughs> list of secret ways we identify each other. <laughs> well, I mean, don't you think a body snatcher would like mimic the oh, wide yeah, butt that's crack? True. That, you, no, I would flip you around and that would be the first thing I checked. And I was like, the, the Y is not there. <laughs> then, then you know you have a body snatcher. That's right. It's like a Ken doll. There are no butt cracks. Smooth sailing. <laughs> but we now need to talk about your wide butt cracks or your wide butt yeah, crack equivalents, like, Lisa. Like what's the thing that you would check for me? Like what's the, like it can't be too, don't, don't I mean, <laughs> blow up my spot. <laughs> it's I'm not I don't it wouldn't be physical, it would be mental, Lisa, because mm. that's the type of guy I am. The problem is we have hours and hours of audio of us sharing our deepest, darkest secrets. So it can't be why butt cracks because we've already that, revealed I, that's it. That's what I'm saying. We have to scratch that off the list. Yeah. Well, it would be maybe some of the nicknames you yeah. give me that you've told me never to put out don't, on the podcast. Do not share those. I really do want not to. do okay. it. Maybe like a Patreon episode, never, Lisa? Oh, never. No, never? Okay. Oh, maybe for Patreon. Get those those $3 <laughs> subscribers. If we get 100 patrons, never. I will reveal one of the nicknames. Okay, one of them. One of the Do nicknames. Do I get to pick? You get to pick. Okay. You get to pick. Okay. Consent, consent. Uh, but all of this stuff kind of gets pushed to the side in Angela's Asgard's Assassin because her sister reveals herself to be part Surtur by being this crazy demon baby. And once the demon baby reveals its true colors, the Guardians of the Galaxy are like, I guess we got to go to heaven and, and throw do. this baby at a fire. Well, they don't know they're going to throw this baby at a fire. But I think that's the answer to every ugly baby. I think they're going to be okay with it because it is a pretty heinous looking baby. I think it's kind of cute. Nevertheless, they do get to heaven and Thor shows up with Loki and the gang. And, uh, you know, th there's there's conversation, there's 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 punching, there's fighting, but they 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 come to terms with each other. And Thor allows Angela to hold the baby one last time. And that's when she chucks the baby into the engine of heaven. And everyone's just like, oh, no. Fool Thor once, shame on him. Fool Thor twice. Still shame on him. It's hard to say full Thor. It is, I know, but we're not redoing it. We're not redoing it. Uh, but that is a great final page to issue five. This tiny little baby being hurled into the flames of heaven. Imagine the TikTok. Wee! <laughs> Wee! Uh, I should insert the sound right here. Ba-dum-bum-bum. -bum -bum. Wee! Ba-bum-bum-bum. Wee! You, you do a pretty good impression. Wee! So Thor is like, WTF? And Angela's like, I have just repaid my debt to heaven. I have restarted their fire. She then dives in. Great panel. This panel, this is the panel of the comic. Her wearing series wedding dress, like wings out, diving into the flames of heaven. Just, it's a really rad panel. This is... 
This is Angela's happy place. This is another Angela happy place. Yes, just she's just living her best life, fulfilling debts. And I imagine it feels great. And once all of the Surter stuff, <laughs> stuff leaves the baby, she pops out. She's all burned up and stuff. She gives the baby back to Freya. And she's like, hey, I was stolen. Then I stole your baby. You have baby now. I also have fulfilled my debt to you. So I she, love that idea. Was a little sad that baby was okay. Really? Because <laughs> like, like, again, you know, you're just like, this is what you have to do. You got to kill this baby. And then of course the baby's fine. We're not going to kill a baby in a comic. Star-Lord would not stand for it. No, of course not. Of course not. But like what's Star-Lord going to do against Angela? Angela has like five friends and they're all guardians. Yeah, I think Rocket, Gamora and Drax would be totally cool with it. And then whatever guardians she loses, she'll go make friends at Untown. A lot of those people, I think they really like jived with her attitude. But also it is her sister. So I guess I'm happy that the sister lives. Nobody is happier than Freya, except for maybe Angela, because Angela is now completely debt-free. And she declares it, I am without price. I am priceless. I can go on. And Freya's like, that's only if we free you after you stole our baby. And Angela is like, walls do not make a prison. So for her, having that interconnected feeling is, is um, confining to her. And so now she is really in this place of, is it joy? Nay, it is happiness because it is transitory. She and Sarah actually ride that rainbow bridge elsewhere. And the second they're on solid ground, Angela is like, I do kind of owe the guardians <laughs> right. and I should probably repay Thor. Uh, so that's her making her one day her day one. She's going to take care of that <laughs> immediately. I, I, I do think that repaying Thor is going to be way down the line because after she says, like, I do need to repay Thor. Well, at least I got to get the Guardian ship back. So Guardians come first before Stepbro. Oh, actually, she's like, at least I have to dump you fake Sarah because oh, this right. is when she yes. says, like, Okay, before I take check that off my list, like it's been really nice having this time with you with the idea of Sarah, but you are not the person, Sarah. Yeah, and so do you think that before they went to heaven, like after that confrontation, after the Desir, before heaven, when Sarah was going through those three questions, Angela, like Angela's pretty like, uh, distrusting of Sarah at that moment. And do you think that sealed it? Like, because she didn't go through the proper body snatcher test that we were talking mm -hmm. about that she, at that moment was like, that's not Sarah, but I got to do this mission first with this fake Sarah. Uh, yeah. That's what, that's how I interpret it. Like there were other points in the story where Sarah was using magic beyond her means. And uh, Angela also thought that that was a little weird. But I do think that it is that conversation and Sarah going like, I have already proven myself to you. Like, I don't think a true 
a true love would do that. And then when Malekith reveals what Freya did with the angels and created a pathway to heaven through the severing of the world tree, uh, that's actually kind of like a gift to Angela. Like the book ends with this big close up, this huge panel of Angela's raging face saying, I'm going to go to hell. And like, you know, she doesn't look happy, but don't you also feel like that is also her happy place? She she likes to be on a mission and she I mean, she I like to me, like that's a, like a grimace and a grin. It's yeah. a grinace. It's a grinace. Yeah. But now she has an opportunity to rescue Sarah, a rescue that she was denied because when Sarah first came back, but it wasn't actually Sarah, it was a question. Let's not think about it. Let's just move on. Let's be happy with it. But now she can have this experience that she just went on with fake Sarah with also now rescuing real Sarah. So this type of story can continue once she rescues Sarah. Does that make sense? Am it I makes total sense. And to me, like it relates back to that like summit syndrome where she's always going to the next thing. She's always on that next mission. Yeah, but like what I'm saying is this story, Asgard's assassin, Angela and Sarah together, even though Sarah is not technically Sarah, this experience gave something to Angela that she wants. Mm -hmm. And now that she knows she can have it by mm. rescuing Sarah from hell, like the, the, the memories of this are going to be so potent in the next adventure. Malekith created this opportunity for her to envision her victory. Now she knows what it's going yeah. to be like, kinda, yeah. to be uh, reunited with her love. And it's going to feel even better because it's going to actually be Sarah. <laughs> It'll be joy. Yes. And do you know what uh, Robin's mom would say? No. Angela has everything she needs to forge her new path. The mm. path to hell, mm. the path to her true lady love. Yes. <laughs> I love it. And I was initially annoyed at the reveal. Like, you know, oh, it was all a dream along. No, it wasn't all a dream along. That's the interesting point. And the revelation of what Freya did and how that kind of connects with Angela's emotional state. Like it really, you know, we said this already, it like solidifies them as a true mother daughter, even though they're estranged. I actually think this reveal is pretty genius. And it fully invests me in the jailbreak that we are going to eventually get. Like when that happens, I am gonna be over the moon. Same, samey, same, same. <laughs> but that is going to have to wait. Mm because our time is up, our session is over, and we'll have to wait until our next session with Angela and Sarah. Which will be a weird trade paperback, right? It's this 1602 Witchfinder Angela. It's part of Secret Wars. So is it our plane of existence? Is it not? I know the third volume will be Queen of Hell. Like, you know, so what I like, I'm I'm fascinated by what the possibility of 1602 is going to be and what our emotional connection to that story is going to be. But if it's anything like Asgard's assassin, the fact that there is some fakery going on, or like Secret Wars, it's not fakery. Like all the stuff is happening. It's just happening in this weird multiversal mashup. Uh, the, the fact that that's all occurring will hopefully thematically elevate 
what's going on between Angela and Sarah as Asgard's assassin did. I just hope that Angela finally cures herself of the hypocrisy in her heart and she admits that what she actually wants is tracts of land. (laughs) And her and Sarah can settle down and take root and I can finally see them play house because that's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want for them too, which is something I did not know that I wanted until I read this. More ice cream, please. More ice cream. I did not know how I was going to feel coming out of this session, but I feel like we have made some headway with Angela and Sarah. And I'm just curious, has any of this conversation resonated with you? Are you going to incorporate some of what we've learned into our our relationship and our marriage? Yeah, I think, you know, on the Robin Roberts front, something that we actually didn't talk too much about in the actual session, this idea of, you know, when you want to be a happier person or if you want to chase joy, there will be uh, instances of sadness that will present themselves and you have to flex that muscle of joy to counter all these tests, right? And I like that idea a lot. I think that falls in line with my own philosophies. I do think like mood is a muscle, right? You you you, you can't just say like uh, this is all happening to me. You know, I'm happy because happy things happen to me. I'm sad because sad things happen to me. At some point, you have to take ownership of that mood. Like when you are feeling really down, if you can practice flexing the muscle of happiness at your lowest, you, you can make headway. You know? Yeah, sometimes it feels like when you are experiencing an emotion, it is forever. Yeah. And I think that that came up with Helen Russell's How to Be Sad. Like, yeah, you're sad, but your sadness isn't forever. And it's the same with happiness. Yeah, you are happy, but you're not going to be happy forever. And I think that what Robin Roberts is talking about is that um, when you practice optimism, it it almost acts as like a tether back to like emotional, like, like you go like, I might be sad, but underneath mm-hmm. my joy still exists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And no emotion is permanent. Mm-hmm. Right. I like all that. Uh, I was not thinking this way as I was reading Asgard's assassin, because I learned everything about Robin Roberts today on this podcast, <laughs> but going into the next episodes, I think what is interesting about Angela and thinking about What is happy for her? What is happiness for Sarah? Like Angela does not exude a traditional happiness, right? But there are moments in this conversation where you go like, yeah, that's that's where uh, Angela is in her most blissed out state. And I would like to kind of zero in on finding more of those moments as I read Witchfinder Angela and Queen of Hell. I think it was really sweet when um, Sarah pointed out her joy, even though it was Malekith, just go with me. When Sarah pointed out like, hey, your tails are wagging. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. hope that you appreciate that you're feeling happiness right now. Yeah, yeah. I like So to me, looking back at Asgard's assassin, that is a critical moment. That is like, that is one of the things that we should be carrying on in every story going forward. 
and the fact that she did get wings when she put on the wedding dress in the temple of everlasting love. She has desires that she will not voice. Mm -hmm. She might not even know that she has. She has not acknowledged. Which is incredibly relatable. Now, what about you, Lisa? Like, what are you pulling from this conversation and applying to yourself? When I first started reading Robin Roberts' book, like, I initially kind of... it. Like, I bucked against it. Yeah. Like, I was just like, these are all platitudes. It is completely unsubstantiated. <laughs> like, there are footnotes, but they're weirdly all to quote books yeah, we in the back of the book. that you love citation and research. But I have also read in many other books that citation and research, like, those citations doesn't necessarily mean that the person actually right, read right, that right. research. And I also think it's interesting to apply a book that kind of leans to platitudes and common sense to Angela and Sarah, who inherently resist such things. I am finding so much of a deeper meaning of what Robin Roberts is saying by looking at it through the prism mm. of Angela and her clinging to the idea of nothing for mm. nothing. Mm. Because if you are living for complete evenness, where no one is owed and no one is in debt. Balance as all things should be. You are denying beautiful emotions like gratitude and that feeling of needing someone or being needed. All, all of those things relate to feeling loved. Mm. And I think, I think about that flute, that unpaid debt between Angela and Sarah, the flute that says, nothing between us is finished. Mm. Like, I think that is going to be the spark for Angela to begin to say, like, honestly, it feels good to feel in debt to someone. It feels good to just give a kid's ball back just mm. because it's the kind thing to do. I get so much meaning in my life out of kindness. And I know that in our relationship, we talk often about like the Jackie Cation idea of like, if we gave each other a dollar for every time we did something we didn't want to do for each other, we would just be passing the same dollar back and forth. You can't really keep a score in love because that flux of need and want is like, <laughs> it's that motion that keeps... I don't know. I'm, I want to mix metaphors. It keeps the <laughs> fire burning in a relationship. I don't ever want to feel I owe you nothing. You owe me nothing. And if we left each other at this moment, neither of us would feel, you know. But I think that the existence of the flute and the fact that she does call the Guardians of the Galaxy friends, I think is an indication that she's not, she might be the most pious angel, 
but she's not perfect. Well, let's think of Angela also in terms of Morpheus. Let's bring it back to Neil Gaiman. And when you're reading Sandman, now we've only read 34 issues so far, 35 issues so far. But when you're reading Sandman, you're watching a god evolve, mm -hmm. his relationship with humanity evolve. And I I see Angela in those terms, just like uh, Odin's son's relationship with humanity has evolved since you know Jack Kirby and Stan Lee brought him uh, onto the page. Yeah, gods evolve slowly. slowly. Yeah. Okay, Brad, I was really great on this podcast, so oh. you owe me. Oh. I will see you in the bedroom. Oh. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? <laughs> This has been weirdly saucy in places, <laughs> uh, deeply disturbing in other places. What a fun episode. You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. And, you know, like if 15 of you join up now, <laughs> one of those Brad nicknames will get leaked. I'm going to come up with a new one nope. just to throw away. Nope. Nope, oh, it'll no. be. It's we gotta we gotta stick to it. Lisa, it's got to be one of the oh, real Brad so, nicknames. So cute. <laughs> Will it? If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast cbccpodcast at gmail .com. You can visit our website comicbookcouplescounseling.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. That's all I had. That's all I had. I had to turn on the microphones for that. For that gold. <laughs>